We are in the book of 1 John in our series called Real Christianity. Um, we are in our fourth week of talking about this series, Real Christianity. And if you're just joining us this morning, uh, just to give you a real quick background of what it means, a Pew Research poll said that over 70% of the United States population defines themselves as a Christian. They affiliate themselves as, as Christian in the label when they're interviewed and they're surveyed. Over 70% of the U.S. population. And I remember last week something Pastor Rob said when he said 70, over 70% of the population may affiliate or associate as Christians, but what if over 70% of the population looked like Jesus? Would we look different? I think the answer for that unequivocally is yes, that we would look different because we have exchanged, and actually going back in history when you look at this, do you know things like the, the, uh, the sinner's prayer that we pray when we check off little boxes and we do? Do you know that's only about 50 years old in the 2,000-year history of the, American, of the church? Checking off a box and saying that we believe that we're sinners and that we confess our sins and that we trust in Jesus and we want to live for him, that's only about 50 years old in a 2,000-year history of the church. And many times, and this is a danger, there's nothing wrong with walking people through that process because the Bible, Romans Road, shows how people have to acknowledge who they are without Christ and they trust in him and he becomes the bridge as we give him our lives over. But the Bible's very clear that it's not about belief, it's about becoming a student of Christ. It's about becoming a follower of Christ so that we're not just believers, but we're disciples. And not everybody that claims that they're a believer is actually a disciple. And this is what we're talking about. How do we demonstrate or or, or differentiate people that say they're Christians versus people that don't? Now, this is not a message at all to cause people to question their salvation in any way, shape, or form. But it is, if you will, a challenge to get back to to the roots of Scripture to say, what do the apostles and the writers of the New Testament say are expectations and fruit, if you will, that demonstrate people are not just followers, but they're growing and maturing in their relationship with God. That's what we're talking about. I'm going to put a slide up there for 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And this is the, the, the thematic scripture that we're using every week that I'm asking you all to read along with us because I believe God's word is our authority. And listen, How many times do you not want to hear what somebody has to say if it's a critique on who you are or something about maybe even if it's a healthy correction? You know, I was talking to someone the other day and they're like, I don't want to be confronted with things that I do that are not necessarily right. Well, I think everybody would say that. But when it's God's word, it's a whole lot easier for me pastorally to say, I'm not going to take offense to something that's in God's word. People can get offended at God. They're not going to get offended at me. And the same thing applies for me. If someone speaks something to me, well, show me where it is in the word. And when it's in the word and I look at it, I go, yeah, if that's true, then it's between me and God to change. So the word is supposed to be our compass and our roadmap. So we're going to read the scripture today before we get into 1 John 2. And let's read it together. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you're looking for the ultimate authority, look no further than the word of God. And I was thinking about this this week, and I I don't know, it's been like kind of an emotional, teary week. I don't even know why. Um, This morning was just a little example of that. But I was looking at buying some Bibles for people that come to Christ in the church, and I was looking at all the online options that are there. And I went when I was looking at a really nice-looking Bible, and like you can buy them bulk and direct, 
And they were like $6. And I just sat there and I looked at the computer and I thought, Lord, the key to changing my life costs $6. Ever think about that? The key to changing our life costs $6. If you want a hard copy, if you want to go online, you can get it for nothing. Think about that. How much time and effort and money and everything else that we can do in our world and in our culture and invest in to make us happier, more content, less, less uh, you know, we don't struggle with as many things. And the amount of time, effort, and money we put towards things. I think about it every time I drive down Allentown Road and I see all those cute little kids running around in the soccer field. And I get this image in my mind of just money coming out of the parents' pockets. I'm dead serious. It's just flowing out. You know, we went to homecoming at North Penn on Friday night and I'm just looking and I just see money flying out of everyone's pockets. Kids are like, I need this, I need this, I need this. And I go thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars listening to one of the band moms talk about the kids, what's going on. She's like, no, no, we're good with everything. We have 45 grand in the bank right now so we can cover this and this and this. And I'm like, all this stuff, which is not bad because God's given us all these things in the world to enjoy and it also identifies our giftings and our personalities. But the one thing that will change our life is the word of God. And you can have it for free. That's why we have this scripture up here. What does God's word say? My hope every week, I say the same thing. As we read the scripture, as we walk through the word this morning, church, my hope is that if you take away anything from this morning, this message is that you take away what's written in the word, not what I say. Take away something that's written in the word because it's the word of God that's going to hold steady. It's the word of God that never fails. So I might point you in that direction, but if you're going to take anything away, I hope the thing you take away comes directly from his word. What does it mean to be a real Christian? Today we're looking at um, 1 John, beginning in chapter 2, verses 28, to 3 chapter, verse 24. We're not going to look at the entire passage because it's pretty long, but today's message is called Live Like a Child. Live like a child. Real Christians learn to live like a child. Now, what does it mean to live like a child, though? Now, what it doesn't mean, let me say this first. What it doesn't mean is to be childish, okay? I'm telling you this morning, live like a child to be a real Christ follower. The Bible calls us to live like a child. Being childish is to act immature. And we're not here this morning to encourage people to act immature. Childish is different. I remember one of my children uh, I won't tell you which one she was, uh, but when she was younger and she's in college now, she, uh, she, I guess like, you know, anyway, uh, I used to tell her when she was little, she would act in a certain way or do something. And I'd say, honey, I'd say, I'd say, stop acting like a baby or stop acting like a child. That's what I say. Stop acting like a child. And she'd stop and she'd look at me and she goes, daddy, I am a child. And I'd be like, I can't use that logic. It doesn't work anymore. And it's to take us older. I could use it. But when they were younger, it didn't work very well. We're not talking about immaturity this morning. We're talking about what it means to live truly like a child of God. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, I am a child of God? Anyone heard that before? Child of God. It's one of those great Christian phrases that people hear about in Scripture. What it means to live like a child of God is this. And I have a slide for you. Look, it says, to live in a way that proves Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to transform my life. You want to live like a child of God. What does it really mean to not be childish, but to live as if you are one of his kids? And that's what the Bible says we are. 
after we trust in Christ and we give our life over to Christ, to truly live like a child, it means to live in a way my life should be demonstrated and and exemplified this way, that proves Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his death, his sacrifice, his resurrection, all of that is sufficient enough to transform my life. If we're really going to live like children of the Most High God, that should be evident to those pe- the people that are around us. Do we know that his sacrifice was sufficient enough for once and all? Do we live in a way to know that his sacrifice was sufficient for once and for all? What do we see across the scriptures? What do we see is the message that continues to remind us that everything was defeated at the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ killed the power of death. Sin was destroyed at the cross. Sins were forgiven at the cross. Through the resurrection, new life has been given to every man, woman, and child who willingly accepts the invitation from Christ. At the cross, chains were broken. Think, what do you mean chains? I mean, our way of thinking as we thought in the past as slaves, how we were prisoners of the world that we live in, to think that there's no hope in a hopeless world, that things will never get any better, that it's just always going to be the same way and nothing will ever change. Have you ever heard anyone say something like that? It's never going to change. Can I tell you, that is a load of garbage because at the cross, God made a way. And he is the God of impossible, guys. He can do anything. At the cross, chains were broken. Our old thoughts no longer keep us captive because of the cross. And we can have a new identity, as the Apostle Paul says. If anyone be in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, what does he say? He is a what? A new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. God is in the process now of taking our old minds and restoring them. He's bringing new life and he's abandoning the old way of thinking and he's giving you the opportunity to think more clearly and to think like you have the mind of God. It doesn't mean that you will be God. It means that now Jesus died so that his spirit may dwell in us and we can begin being more like the Father, loving more like the Father growing in ways that we weren't able to grow before. Before the cross, hope was lost. After, through salvation, we've been made new. The Bible uses terms like adopted, that you and I have been adopted, that he's given us a new name. You have a new name. Growing up, I can't tell you the number of kids that I knew that were friends of mine that would say, oh yeah, my parents told me that I was a mistake. What? Well, and they didn't even mean what we think they meant. They just meant they were an unplanned baby. But instead of saying unplanned, they would say things like a mistake. How many of you would want to walk around with that label on you for the rest of your life? Or children that I know that have grown up without families or parents, that they abandon them and they legitimately leave them as orphans where there's no one to care for them. What message does it send to that little boy or that little girl about what their parents did or didn't do? Or I think about the horrific stories, thinking of a missionary friend, a family this week that I met that are going to be going to Cambodia and how we were talking about the human trafficking there and the people they've met where families will willingly take little girls that are five, six years old and they can't care for them or they don't know how to care for them, so they sell them into human trafficking to make money for their family. What kind of identity does that little girl have for the rest of her life? Because of the cross, 
We've been adopted, he says. He takes us from the dark places of our lives where we were worthless because of maybe family members or dads that were abusive or moms that weren't present or children that were bullied in school or addictions that we've struggled with in our lives. And he pulls us out of all that mire and he pulls us into him and he says, you're my kid. I'm your dad and you now are my kid and you've been adopted and I'm giving you a new name with a new purpose and a new way of life. And Paul calls us to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel because of this. Because we've been given new life, because you've been given new hope, because I've been restored, we can live new lives. We can live for Christ. And we can be light in a dark world. Living like a child means to live in a way that proves Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to transform my life. Do you believe this morning that his work on the cross is sufficient enough to transform your life? And I tell you, I'd be the first to say that there are things in my life that I go, that's dead, that's over, that's gone, that's never going to be a problem for me, I don't believe, because I know Jesus died for me, but there's still stuff that still, I still wrestle with because I still have my body to deal with. I still have my sinful nature to deal with. I still have the world around me that continues to attack me and challenges me over and over again to believe a lie and not to believe the truth. But it doesn't change the fact that when I listen to the voice of truth and not the voice of lie, I'm reminded that the truth of God shows me that he is sufficient to transform my life. How do we do this? How do we do this? It's good to put it on a slide and go, yeah, that makes sense. Now, how do we do it? Well, 1 John gives us a little insight into that this morning. And it's a repeat, actually, picking up right at the end of where Pastor Rob was last week. How do we do this? Choosing to live like a child means what? Here's the first thing. Choosing to live like a child means staying connected with Jesus. Stay connected to Jesus. If you want to live like a child of God, you need to stay connected to Jesus. The word that was used in last week's message that Pastor Rob mentioned many times was remain. In verse 28 of chapter 2, he says this, Look, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. What John's talking about is to remain in Christ, to continue in him. And last week, Pastor Rob talked about remaining in Christ. It's the first thing that we talk about in our follow discipleship of staying connected with Jesus, where he's the vine and we're the branches. But too often, if we're not careful, we associate remaining with passivity. And the Bible does not equate remaining in Christ with a passive approach to life. Remaining in Christ is a very active, intentional choice. If we choose nothing, we do not choose to remain in Christ. When I was a kid, and I mean like third grade, fourth grade, like I was a really late bloomer. I was a really late bloomer. Like I didn't grow till like my junior year of high school. So when I went into high school, I was like five feet tall. And uh, I was a little swollen. Um, and so a little bigger kid, okay? And I was five feet tall. And, uh, and I was kind of like that for most of my years, as my younger years. I could run, though, man. I was fast for a little kid. But we had all these tires at the playground that I grew up in in elementary school. And you know how those, those tire playgrounds that, like, half of the tire would be buried in the dirt? And then you see, like, the bumps that would be there? We used to play King of the Hill every, um, 
every recess when I was like in third grade or fourth grade. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you ever played King of the Hill? It's a really like violent game. It is. It's violent to do that. You know what I'm talking about? Like it is really, really violent because when you get to the top of that mountain, which is really the tire, what happens? Everybody's trying to get you down, right? And you have a goal. And what's your goal? I am not going to be moved. So to become king of the hill, you've got to fight and kick and scream and get your way up there. Once you're up there, you've got to fight to stay there. You have to fight to stay there. You have to fight to remain on the mountain. Can I tell you what a great picture that is of our Christianity, church? What a great picture of our Christianity. Every single one of us. I don't care if, you're, if you grew up in this community. I don't care if you were missionaries on the other side of the world. I don't care if you have known Jesus all your life or you're brand new in your faith. Every one of us has the same thing in common. If we want to grow in our relationship with Christ, whether you're big or you're short or whether you're white or you're black or what nation you come from, it doesn't matter. God loves us all equally, gives us the opportunity to know him, and it's work for us to grow and to remain in Christ. It's ongoing, it's daily, it's active. It's a choice. You ever been in a group situation where something really bad maybe would be about to happen or you're not quite sure if something's ready to happen and someone gets on like a microphone or a loudspeaker and says, okay, everybody, everybody stay calm. And then they get ready to tell you something. And they tell you that first. Do you know why they tell you that first? Because everybody needs to make a conscious choice right at that moment to not become chaotic. I need everybody to stay calm. Okay, or did you ever get a phone call from a friend or a family member? Okay, are you sitting down? I need you to sit down. Everybody's okay, but I want you to be calm. Okay, what's going to happen? What's happening in that moment is we have to make a choice to either be okay or to freak out. And the same thing applies with our faith, church. Every day, to stay connected with Christ, we have to choose every single day to stay connected with him. It's a renewing of our minds to choose every day to get up and to focus on the things that Paul says in Philippians 4. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are excellent, whatsoever things are praiseworthy. What does he say? Think on these things. Every day, I have to choose that. Every day, I have to choose to make a decision to follow Christ. Every day, I have to choose if I want to continue to stay connected with the Lord. And if I don't stay connected with him because I choose not to, it's not God's fault. Even Joshua said when he brought the generation, the second generation, into the promised land, what does he say in 2415, in Joshua 2415? He says to the nation, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will choose the Lord. We have to choose and make the choice every day. And there's always something around us that's vying for our attention. Don't honor God with your time today, Paul. That new TV show is on that you wanted to see. Don't honor God with your quiet time, Paul. It's more fun and it's easier to just find out where everyone's been eating this weekend on Facebook. It's silly, isn't it? We still take pictures of our food. It's 2017. You know how mocked we're going to be by our kids when we get older? It's so silly. Don't do that. Don't serve. Don't develop your gifts. It's too easy to sit on the couch and eat chips and watch the reruns you've seen 20 times already. 
Don't worry about being focused and committed to prayer. There's too many other things that matter. Certainly don't make your life about giving it for the things of the Lord. You have a name to make for yourself. You have a career to build. You already got your spouse. Why do you need to keep serving her or him? Guys, especially, man. I don't know what it is about guys. It's the thrill of the hunt, man. And then once you get it, it's like, where's the next hunt? You know, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's another lady. I'm just, don't, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But isn't this true? We court our spouses when we're dating. I want to know all about you. Oh, oh. And then we play all the songs, especially if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s. You know, I'll die for you. Everything I do for you. You give me breath. And we like take all these songs and we like play them and we show them and all this stuff. We write letters. My wife has a stack of notes that I wrote to her. I was the most ridiculous, sappy nut job in college. She still has them. And I was like, why do you have those? Get rid of those. They're really embarrassing. And she was like, you were like way out there, crazy, like flip over, like head over heels kind of thing. You know the last time I wrote my wife a letter? I don't have any idea. I, I, can't even, I can't even remember. You know, you hear the silly things that people say in their marriages. Like, I told you I loved you when we got married. And if it ever changes, I'll tell you again. That's silly. You've got you've to develop this stuff, guys. Ladies, you've got to develop it. You've got to grow. You've got to allow Christ to continue. No, no, it's too easy for our eyes to wander. It's too easy to think about me. It's too easy in a marriage for me to think about me, guys. I mean, I have needs, you know, Pastor. Yeah, we all do. I I just telling someone last week, and they were like, I never thought about that. Again, I've said this before, but I've never ever heard anybody come together as a couple that wanted to get married. And they looked at me with eyes all, you know, excited, and they went, I want to share my life with this person because I've never found someone that really will allow me to show them how much I love them by truly dying to myself. This person is going to allow me to die to myself. Nobody says that. What do they say? I just get all warm and fuzzy inside. They they meet something in me that I can't meet in myself. What is it about? Me, 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 me. And then we come together. And then what happens after that? It's her, him, her, him. And this is what happens in our relationship. Am I wrong or am I right? Come on. This is legitimate. This is what happens in our lives. This is like marriage 101, relationships 101. But it doesn't have to just happen in marriage. It can happen in our life. We can't buy into these lives, these lies. Continuing in Christ means that we have making, we're making the time, we're investing in renewing our minds so that we learn to die, so that others can live. And through our death, Jesus raises us to life. It's beautiful, but it is really hard. That's the beauty of what we're trying to say here. Renewing our minds. If you want to stay, if you want to choose to live like a child, and it is a choice every day, stay connected to Jesus. And as we continue to be faithful, we can be confident to know that we will be more and more like him. That's what he does. Every time we choose to be more like Jesus today, It's like he peels off a layer of the old man or the old woman and says, inside of you is Christ. And we're going to peel all this old junk away and and you get more of the picture. You know, there was a a game show years ago. Maybe some of you remember it. I can't even remember the name of it. But every time like you spun the wheel or you did something, they would remove a number or something and you could kind of get an idea of the picture that was behind it eventually and you could guess whatever the picture was. And that's kind of what he's doing in my life and he wants to do in, in your lives is that he says, inside of you, The spirit of the living God dwells in you and he wants to look. He wants everyone to look at you and see him, not you. 
So every day when I choose to stay with Christ, to stay connected to Jesus, another layer of the old Paul gets peeled away. And in the next morning when I get up, I can choose to let him peel another layer off or I can choose to pick a layer and put it back on again. Stay connected to Jesus and we can choose to live like children. The second thing this morning is know who you are in Christ. Know who you are in Christ. And this is so huge and here's why. If we don't live, we can't live like children of God if we don't know we're his children. It's really impossible to be a child of someone and live like a child of someone if you don't even know that you're actually their child. 1 John 3 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I'm going to say that again. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now that we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. What he's saying here is we're children of God, but we're not completely transformed. But we know that when Christ appears, look, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is such a huge passage because I think it's one of the most, the number one thing that people struggle with, I think, in the Christian church, and that is understanding just how much God loves them. Do you know that God sees you in a way? Like, I don't even understand it, and be honest, in the Old Testament especially, it's just weird to me, where it's like, you know, he dances over me. He rejoices over me, and I get this image of God going like, and I'm like, I don't get that, and it's kind of weird. I don't understand that. I'm a guy. Why are you dancing over me? But this is the reality. He doesn't look at you as a grown man or a grown woman. He looks at you like one of his kids. And you know, I was going through videos this past week. We have all these videos on my computer from when my kids were little. And I did some really stupid things in front of my kids when they were younger. I mean, I did some really stupid things. Silly songs, made up things, dressed the dog up, did crazy things outside. And I look back at that and I go, why does a grown person act differently in front of children, right? And yet we do, right? If you don't believe me, we have babies in the nursery. I I dare you to go back to a baby and say, good morning, how are you today? The people will be like, what's up with you? No, what do you say when there's a little baby? Oh, little baby, you're so cute. I don't get that, right? Why do we do that? Because they're a baby, right? It doesn't make me more, less mature, to do that. It wouldn't make you less mature to do that. What does it do? There's something in your heart that just wants to connect with the little baby and you do whatever you can. I mean, I'll never, ever do this. You come into my office and speak to me someday about something. I won't go (laughs) and if I do that, you need to leave and find another church. I'll never do that. I swear I won't. But how many times I'll be sitting there, have a conversation with something, I mean, and with someone, and then they come in with a little baby. Oh, everyone goes, oh, and we sit there and we're goofy with the baby and we're playing with them and baby spits on you. It's okay. Like, that's what we do, right? Because that's how we respond to children. Please think this with, think this with me or go with me with this for a minute, for a minute. We're God's babies. We're God's kids. He looks at us and that's what he does. Are you with me? Like, it's, it's hard to understand, isn't it? Oh, little Chucky, you're so cute right there. <laughs> right? You know, and you're sitting there going, no, no. <laughs> you 
you know. You know, look at little Dougie in the back there. And there's Joey over there. Like your hair. Looks good. Like, I mean, th- this is what God does. He looks at us and he delights in you and me. He delights in you and me. But there's so much about who we are as people that we don't want to see ourselves that way. Or maybe we grew up in a home where maybe our dads didn't delight in us. And I can tell you, the horrific stories after the horrific stories of people that have shared what kind of miserable lives they had growing up. You know, if you're one of those guys that grew up in a home or your dad was like spiritually leading the home and demonstrated godliness in the way that he loved you, can I tell you, you are less than 10% of the population in this country of men that have grown up with, uh, with dads like, like that. You're less than 10%. Most people have grown up with the working man or the guy who struggled with an addiction or the guy who maybe loved his family but didn't have the skills to do it the right way. Why? Because their dad didn't know how to do it. And so many guys have spent their lives walking through, finding ways to seek healing and forgiveness and they struggle or they replicate the same things that they've had before in their past. And can I tell you this morning, none of that is God. We're all broken in different ways, but the Father in heaven looks at you guys and ladies. He looks at you and he delights in you. He delights in you. He wants to give you good gifts. He has to discipline us sometimes because, well, we're kids. And every kid that wants to become healthy and balanced sometimes needs a little nudge on the discipline side, right? You know what I'm talking about? God, why would you do this to me? And God's like, I do it because I need to, because I love you, and I don't want to see you make a bad choice. The Bible shows us that he loves us, that he's the one that draws us to himself, that we never come to God on our own. The idea of leading someone to Jesus, I led someone to the Lord, isn't even really an accurate statement biblically. We were involved in the process as someone chose to respond to the invitation of Christ. And that's more accurate. But we almost take the ownership when we say, I led this person to the Lord. No, you didn't. Jesus led him to himself. And through the invitation, he invited you along to the process to help them. And that's even more beautiful because it takes the onus off of us. And it says, thank you for letting me be a part of that, Lord. It's a beautiful story of God's love for us. Nothing can change our love or his love for us. Nothing can change the fact that he loves his kids. Pastor Brian Chappell says this about being a child of God. Look, he says, I do not stop being a child of God because I am a problem child. I love that. I love that. Because there are times in my life where I'm a problem child. And I have been. And I go, God, I get ticked off. And he's like, you're still a child of God. I still love you. And I still want to draw you close to me. And can I tell you, church, when we understand this, the more we understand it and the deeper that we go in understanding the things of God like this, the better our response is, the way that we can become a child of God. And it's not an obligation or some law. It's simply a response to who God is. I've, do not stop being a child of God because I'm a problem child. Know who you are in Christ. To choose to live like a child also means this. Run from sin and pu- pursue purity. Run from sin and pursue purity. Verse 4 says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin. And in him is no sin. Okay, buckle up. Ready? No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. 
No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And look at verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, but they have been born of God. Wow. Read that and go, what are we supposed to do with that? And what is John saying here? Now, what he's not saying, okay, because people can look at that and go, if you, if you make a mistake and you're sinning and you continue to have an error here, you're not even saved. You're not even a Christian. And people can look at this literally and think, well, I made a mistake, so I guess I, I was saved yesterday. I'm not saved today. Now I need to get saved again. I should get water baptized. That's not at all what the scripture is actually talking about. The idea of sinning, is about a commitment to continue to walk in the wrong direction. It's about not allowing God to transform you to become more and more like Christ. Real Christians have to recognize sin and run from it. And because why? Because the power of God that lives in us, the spirit of God that lives in us should convict us to even when we walk in a way that is not of God, right? Hear me on this. Even when we walk in a way that is not of God, there is a check in our spirit to go, that's wrong. That's wrong. Can I tell you, as silly as it is, and I go, God, why did you give me this gift? Like, I can add up stuff in the supermarket or the stores when we go stuff, and I can just add things up sometimes and get an idea. And I've done it with my kids a couple times where, you know, we guess, and within like 50 cents, Jacob knows what I'm talking about, 20 cents, 25, I'm like, it's going to be this, 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 and within like 40 cents or 30 cents with tax, and it's close. I do that in my head, usually when I go places. And there have been many times over the years that I do it in my head, and the bill comes out, and I go, something wasn't scanned. They missed something. Something doesn't seem right. And I was like, do I really? And I'm like, God, why'd you have to let me be like this? Why can't I just take it and go home and go, oh, whatever? You know? And I'm like, something's not right. And I go back and I get the receipt and I go, you missed something on this. And what is it? Oh, yeah, that's the thing that they missed. Can I tell you how many times that the thing is like a dollar? It's like a dollar. And I'm like, I'm convicted over a dollar. This is ridiculous. And yet the conviction of the Spirit says, you know what? If I can't trust you with a dollar, how can I trust you with a million? It's honest. Last week when I wrote my bills out and the tithe was the first thing that I hit the list. Can I tell you, I looked at it and I said, God, it's the first thing that I'm writing out to you. And I'm doing that. And, you know, there isn't, a, there isn't a pay period that goes by that I don't look at all the other expenses and things that I have to do. And I go, God, do you know what I could? And he just like waits there. It's almost like the dad just sitting there smiling, going, come on, come on. What are you going to say? Do you know what I could do? Yeah, I know. But do you know what you're missing out on? Because if you don't, and if you can't trust me with that, I can't trust you with my church. If I can't trust you, Paul, with something simple, because like money is like one of the easiest things for God. You know, seriously. I mean, the Bible says he owns a cattle in a thousand hills. And that doesn't mean the thousand and first belongs to the devil. It means he owns all of it. A thousand is just everything. He's like, I own every resource. And I'm like, I can't trust you with this. Then what can I trust him with? And how can he trust me? I only bring that example up because that's a real personal one for me. Because I still wrestle with that at different times. Going, God, you've asked me to do some really crazy stuff. And I still trust you in the process on it. But wow, there's that little spirit of truth in my heart 
that always wants to remind me about what the right way is. And that's what John's talking about. We cannot call ourselves followers of Christ. We cannot call ourselves ongoing, maturing, growing children of God if we don't have that still small voice constantly pointing us in the right direction. And we have to respond to it if we want to grow. We have to respond to it if we want to mature. Because at some point, if we stop responding to him, he's still there, but we don't listen anymore. And the voice gets quieter and quieter. And then we look and go, where are we? And we find ourselves in the darkness, not in the light. Continuing to go on sinning does mean that we continue to make that our go-to, that we continue to make that our normal way of life, that we throw our hands up and go, it's always been this way, it's never going to change. It is not saying that for us to be as Christ, we need to be perfect. You know, when you think about people that have become masters in their trades or in their professions, athletes, musicians, artists, journalists, Studies have been done that say you have to spend at least 10,000 hours of intentional practice to become an expert in an area that you want to become an expert or a master in. You know what all of those people have in common after they're experts? They all still make mistakes. Even the greatest musicians that have ever walked the face of the earth still will make mistakes in the latter years of their lives. And they've done it for decades. The greatest journalists will still spell something or say something wrong. The greatest athletes will still fumble on the field occasionally. Why? Because they're human. And I think that's the part we have to remember as Christians, as followers of Christ, guys. We grow and become more like Jesus, but we are still human. And the goal isn't perfection on this side of eternity, but we should be walking closer and closer to Christ. Perfection has never been the measure on this side of eternity. It's been progression from sin to sinlessness. Is that the way that you look at the world? Do you run from the things of sin and embrace the things of God? Choosing to live like a child, lastly, means this. To selfly love others like Jesus loves us. And that's what John says here in verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. Look, we should love others one another. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. I think John would tick off a lot of people in 2017. I just think he would. We'd be like, you're John the Beloved. And he'd be like, you know, and he would still be loving people. You know what I think? He had the MO of being a guy who loved people, but he also was a man who spoke biblical truth. Man, the two of them have to go together. You're not loving anybody if you can't speak truth to them. That's not love. That's not love. You have to be able to love people in grace and show Christ, but also bring truth along the line. And if you can't do that, then you're not really completely loving them. You've got to be able to walk it out together in unison, in parallel, or else you're not really helping them. He says the world hates Christians. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Listen, the world hates Christians. This is absolutely true. What do you mean? They don't hate the humanitarian work that we do. They don't hate the serving projects that we do. What they hate is the message of the gospel that says there is one way to God, and his name is Jesus And all other roads lead to death and destruction. This is the gospel message. People resist that. 
And they say, well, that's too exclusive. No, it's not. It's all-inclusive because the Bible doesn't show us that only some have the invitation. It's available to all men and all women of all races, colors, and creeds. And it is offensive to people because of that. Listen, if everybody that you meet, talk to, or understand, or spend time with sees you as a Christian and nobody has an offense by anything that you do, you need to reevaluate how you live. Because the cross of Christ is an offense, the Bible says, to the world around us. So we shouldn't walk around pounding our Bibles. But the truth itself will become offensive to people at different times. Truth has to be clear. And it's not relative. The Bible shows us truth is not relative. It is absolute. And it's in this word. And if we don't defend this, I shouldn't even say defend. If we don't make this the core of who we are, then then we're not really being who God has called us to be selflessly love others like Jesus loves us. Pastor Matt, if you guys in the worship team would come up and get ready to close this morning. I want to read this from verse 16 because selfless love is a big term. So I think I, I thought I'd make it a little bit clearer as to what that really looks like. In verse 16, here's what it says. This is how we know what love is. Look, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. What is John saying here? True selfless love for children of God is to willingly die for the sake of others. And that doesn't necessarily mean physically. Sometimes it does. But it means that our life exists to serve Christ and the way that we love others is specifically exemplified by the way Christ loved us. He came to die. He came to serve. He came to love. And if the church isn't laying down its life for each other, what message of truth do we have for the word around for the world around us? If our homes don't look different than the people that are not Christians around us, what message does the church have to spread of life and truth? If our marriages aren't beating the 50-50 ratio that you see in our culture, where 50% of the marriages die and they end in divorce, what message do we have for the church or for the world around us? If our homes are not in order, if our finances aren't honoring God with stewardship, if our eyes aren't being guarded against the things that bring impurity into our lives, if we're not loving others selflessly and showing people what it means to be a child of God, the message of the cross has no power to the world around us. If we hold on to bitterness and harbor unforgiveness in our heart and offense and do our own thing and divide and separate. What message of hope is there for the culture and the people around us in this world? Because they understand unforgiveness, don't they? We live in a world that understands offense, that lives in a world, we live in a world that understands bitterness and division. Yet the church is called to a higher standard. Why? Because we love, because he first loved us, because he died so that we may live. That's the message of the cross, church. That's the message of the cross. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. The greatest testimony and the greatest act of worship we could ever give 
as a body of Christ is for our hands to be open before him and to say, God, take the dead in me and raise me to life. I'm giving my life to you and sacrifice so that you can raise me to new life. Would you stand with me this morning? I just want to ask the Lord this morning as we close with this song that we would look at the power and the authority that comes from the Spirit of God to remind us that as His kids, we don't do this in our own strength, but we do this, as Paul says, through the Spirit of Christ who raised Jesus Himself from the dead and through His power and presence, all things are able to come to pass.